The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose, and I'm in conversation for The Bigger Picture with Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in uh, London. Um, So, Tim, we're going to, if we have time, talk about three topics. What are we going to begin with? I thought the first uh, thing that would be fun to talk about is really what is the dominant philosophical or economic school um, that has mainly had its way uh, during the course of our adult lives. Um, and, and for us, that really means the last four decades. And uh, having thought a lot about this, um, I have to conclude that that first price has to go to uh, the, the classical liberals. Um, it, for all the problems around COVID and all the problems around the financial crisis, um, the dominant theme of the last 40 years has been the rise of markets and of of sort of tools that have been in the suitcases, if you will, of of politicians around the world, tools like deregulation, privatization, liberalization, those. And obviously classical liberalism goes back in the modern world to Adam Smith and Ricardo and those sort of classical market economists who generally point to the market not only being a spur for innovation and creativity, but as an incentive whereby people can optimize their efforts and their talents and where they can reap the rewards or, or the justly acquired uh, rewards of their labor. And I'm constantly minded how much the world has changed since my childhood. The 1970s was a world where you could wake up in the morning um, you know, you could have uh, your milk uh, on your cornflakes. The milk, like like cheese and butter, would be priced uh, by the milk marketing board. Um, your electricity, where you turn on the lamp, would come from a state electricity company. When you were washing your teeth, having a, uh, a well, it would have been a bath in those days. Um, the, the water came from a nationalised water company, and you would go on through the day. Um, you might drive uh, a British Leyland car. That was a state car company. Yet we're in a we're in a yes. Your phone, if you world. could get your phone, if you could get one, not only came from a state company, but many of my friends had shared party lines. Exactly, and in the days before British Telecom, when it was state owned, the GPO, there were four colours of phone. Um, uh, there was cream. Uh, grey, black and green. The average waiting list by 1978 was about three months. Um, and you could either have one of those old-fashioned circular dials or you could have a very whizzy, modern mm-hmm. push-button. But beyond that, there was no choice. What a path we've trod. And not just in this country. This isn't This isn't simply about you know, Margaret Thatcher or Ronald Reagan. These are trends that are global. People now uh, have... Uh, access to much more competitive things in their daily lives. They have much more choice when it comes to motor vehicles. Um, Long gone are sort of set, you know, plastic and Bakelite nationalized phone equipment. People have all these wonderful fancy devices. Um, and, And really, even if you come to the modern world and you reflect on the average sort of thing that we're all coping with in our newspapers this month, what you're seeing is Bitcoin um, and other digital currencies, um, 
sort of starting to challenge, sort of represent some form of exit from the central banks and the Fed. Uh, DeFi was, that was in the newspapers a little while ago, was sort of uh, a bit of a rebellion against Wall Street. Social media is to an extent an exit from the old broadcast mass media of, of you know, nationalized entities like the BBC. Homeschooling, online tutorials, um, that much more opaque and blurred digital uh, uh, world of online education is, is very much, I think, an exit from the sort of the industrial age education that we think of when you think of a set classroom and learning by rote. Remote working is to an extent an exit from the drudgery and the tradition of nine to five for, for millions of people now. And the creator economy also represents an exit from traditional and formal forms of employment. In a way, many individuals are leaving or no longer have the allegiance to institutions that they once had. So whether I reflect on the economic infrastructure that, that, that I previously touched on, or I look at some of the practices that, that the modern you know, COVID pandemic has, has accentuated and emphasized, it does seem to me that the, the sort of the classical liberals, that sense of creative individualism, um, in the economic sphere and in, in the workplace and in key areas like education seems to be winning the day. We seem to be living the period of history where, for good or for bad, classical liberals are winning many, many areas. I haven't even touched on private space flight, which we've discussed before. That's another area. Um, and yet it's not that long ago that we thought there was a distinct possibility that Jeremy Corbyn would become Prime Minister and there seemed to be a lot of young people, the sort of people who most benefit from a lot of the things you've discussed, who seemed perfectly happy with his idea that he would nationalise everything again. So it, you may be right that classical liberalism may have, have, have won out and benefited society enormously, but it doesn't seem to be reaping much of the credit for what's happened. Well, uh, there are politicians. You see them around the world. Jeremy Corbyn, uh, is, is, you know, is one person from 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 the hard left. There are there are other people who take a similar economic view, actually, and who uh, are, are differently pleasured hmm. politically. Uh, I'm thinking of Marie Le Pen in America, uh, in in France, who, uh, or you know, although she indulges in the in the politics of identity. Um, in economic terms, she is very much from the Corbyn stable. Mm. But as yet, those people uh, have, you know, seem to be some way off having an electoral breakthrough. And, and you can have young people who use social media, and they can be very loud, and they can be very impressive and very vociferous. Yet, the Labour Party suffered its worst electoral defeat since 1935. And what do you have in Britain? Well, you have the Conservatives with a majority of 80. So for all the shouting and all the social media and all the loudness, um, I, I return to my central point, which is very simply, at the moment, we seem to be living in a period of history. And I choose my words very wisely. I, you know, I'm not saying this won't turn. Um, um, you know, what you live with today uh, nothing lasts forever, so it will turn. But but at the moment, for the for for the immediate months and few years ahead, and certainly for the last forty years, 
the dominant direction in our economy um, uh, seems to have been you know, the, the first price goes to the classical liberals. Um, but it isn't only those politicians, is it? I mean, I was looking, um, uh, just wanted to check this, but a YouGov study, admittedly it's, it's back in 2017, but looked at the public's um, preference for whether different industries should be run by the state or uh, by private companies. I mean, there was a massive um, support then for railway companies being run by the state. Although you and I will remember just exactly what that was like in the old days. Efficient was not the word we would use. It, well, of course, the railways, in a sense, does. Uh, the, the, the railways do emphasise the point that there was a period from the middle of the 19th century through to the middle of the 20th century where they were in private ownership. Um, now, the state became more active in the railways uh, after the First World War. There was more regulation, for example, and control of timetables by government. Mm. But, but they, it was a fairly competitive and dynamic and growing industry. Then you saw the rise of the motor, motor car and the, the rise of international flight. And then the railways spent, what, you know, 30, 40 years very much in the hands of the public sector. Now the railways have come back into the private sector. In a way, that's my point. You have these periods of history uh, where there are huge oscillations between the public and the private realms. And, and it is certainly the case. Like, you know, I'd be the first to say, well, it's, it's possible that, I know, five or ten years from now, history might oscillate in a much more statist direction again. But, but the people who have demonstrably done very well in the last 40 years are those classical liberal economists, the sort of people who would be um, in alignment with Adam Smith, with uh, Ricardo, with, you know, modern thinkers like Friedrich Hayek, Ludwig von Mises, and others uh, who were pushing, pushing, pushing for private enterprise in areas where, well, by the 1950s and 60s, many people thought private enterprise cannot go. Will it last forever? No, it won't. Um, history isn't like that. Humans aren't like that. Mm-hmm. But I think it's important to reflect on what an astonishing victory those classical liberals have had during the course, Simon, of our adult lives. True. I mean, it's very hard to explain to young people um, just how different things were in those days or even you know even explaining how record players worked or the fact that your telephones were, pl- were plugged into a wall and you couldn't move away from it Indeed. Um, that's not to say that that would not have happened if it you know the telephone prov- provision had remained in um, state hands but um, what a difference the last 40 years or so have actually made in our, in our lives it just it seems surprising though that i mean in that yougov survey it wasn't only railway companies um but you know if you exclude the don't knows um then a majority wanted bus companies, energy companies, water companies, uh, and even Royal Mail put back into state ownership. It's as if that you know people don't quite appreciate what the difference would would be, or maybe it's because so many people have not had experience of the state running those things. Yes, but you know, to, to be fair, if, if if we were sitting here, let's say in 1967, and I said back then to the average person. Uh, even, for example, the average conservative voter, um, that I believe that um, uh, the British Leyland should be returned to the private sector and that motor car production 
uh, is not a strategic sector mm. uh, that is part of the purview of the state, but it could be done privately. What the listener would have actually heard, what they'd have interpreted uh, me as saying is they don't believe we should have a motor car industry at all because it was so ingrained, the idea that to have a motor car industry, you had to have, you know, state-owned companies. That was the view at the time. And um, who could have imagined back in 1967 that within 10 or 15 years, uh, it would become serious political currency to argue precisely for a return to the private production of motor cars. And that's my point. Whether you're in an era where you're looking back uh, to, a, to, to a more privatized time, but you believe in the, the inevitability in your mm. area of nationalization and statism, or you're where we are at the moment. So when a lot of the people you will cite in those opinion polls probably might want those things to return to the public sector. But if you said, will they be in the next five to 10 years, maybe many of them will say, no, I don't think it's going to happen. Well, the point, my point is it might, um, because public policy and these long trajectories you know, these long periods, these half century long periods uh, where one uh, political and philosophical grouping win, well, you can then reach a pivot point, an inflection point where things can go in a different and unpredicted direction. Tim, time probably is for us, decent time for us to change subjects. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. Turn to our second um, topic. Um, now, you, as ever, you give me reading matter on this, and this is um, about uh, central banks having a digital currency, which I must say I found absolutely fascinating. I'd read one of these pieces already, but the other one I want to read again um, afterwards because it's just so interesting, comes up with so many different ideas. So how do we begin? Well, um, many central banks around the world, uh, including the Bank of England, uh, uh, the Bank of China, um, and many others are starting to research what is technically called CBDC, which is Central Bank Digital Currency. Um, there's a very, very good article a few days ago um, about um, uh, Chinese Central Bank Digital Currency, the sort of plans that China has for the future, and that was on Bloomberg, and there's a very good piece uh, by Jeremy Warner um, in The Telegraph, um, from yesterday about this. Um, the first thing is that the British government, the Bank of England and the Treasury are researching this area. And I think the first thing is that there is a realization in national finance ministries and treasuries and in central banks that, um, that, that the old world where the state simply has a monopoly on money um, has you know control of currency through, for example, the uh, legal tender laws, that this world is under pressure. And there are lots and lots of entrepreneurs out there, lots of new market entrants coming into the digital money space. One really indication of this is that the number of digital monies that children are starting to use in online gaming and they're real currencies and they're often pegged to the dollar or the pound or other reserve currencies. Mm. Um, and you know, and and, and children are, inc and I mean, young children, five and ten year olds, are getting familiar with them. Um, 
And, and of course, then there are the more grown up uh, digital currencies of which Bitcoin is one. And what, we, what we've seen, Simon, since the last time we spoke a couple of weeks ago is that for the first time, um, digital currencies like Bitcoin now represent a bigger market than MasterCard, PayPal, Visa, all lumped together. The, the, the market for digital currencies has broken through the $1.2 trillion um, band. And, and so you have these putatively private, uh, inelastic monies out there. Bitcoin is only ever going to have 21 million Bitcoins. This is not stuff that is going to be inflated away easily um, or, or debased, to use medieval terminology, by politicians and, and, and monarchs and those in power. And, and, and so I think central banks and treasuries are forced to turn to this subject and really to think, you know, if there is going to be a future of digital currency, what can central banks do? What sort of currencies might they be able to produce? What would be the consequences and the unintended consequences of these things? Um, and what role might they have, dare I say it, in shoring up statecraft? Because who controls money um, and therefore the lifeline of the state, things like uh, you know, the oxygen required to run a state like taxation is very, very significant. Mm -hmm. I, and I don't think that, that, that governments are going to want uh, to see powerfully encrypted private currencies uh, dominate uh, the world simply because it will make control and tax revenue much more challenging. Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting area. It is. Um, Telegraph's at Questa, um column, they have a, a wealth preserver portfolio. And I was intrigued to see very recently um, that they were recommending not only gold as part of the portfolio, but even Bitcoin. They say they, they thought Bitcoin deserved its comparison with gold, which I thought was you know, absolutely fascinating. However, the nature of money is not understood by many people. And it was fascinating just a few years ago when the Bank of England actually produced a paper on this, trying to explain it to people and pointed out that it was not the main creator of money in the system. Most people think, well, it's the Bank of England that prints all the notes. We have this thing called um, fractional reserve um, banking, and it is the banks that create most of the money by lending money into existence. Money does not exist until the banks actually lend it out. Now, when you try and ally this to a central bank digital currency, well, all manner of problems occur. I mean, what's going to happen? Is it the central bank that's going to be lending money for everybody? You can't imagine that's going to going to happen. Um, Jeremy Warner did discuss this in his piece. But what do you think about this? Because it, you know, it's, it's, it's massively important that, that this be got right. You're absolutely right. And, you know, in a way, um, the trend we were previously discussing, which is about the rise of classical liberals, um, you're absolutely right. Because, you know, whereas when we were young, most money was created by the central banks. And when we were, when we were children, uh, about 95% of it was in, 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 in these narrow forms of money, mm. M0, M1, M2. What you now have, and you're absolutely right, is you have something in excess of 95% of money is lent into existence through, through you know, credit, um, and, and that central banks have very, very little control. Um, yes, so the nature of money also has a huge impact on the type of financial system you have. And uh, if you were to put central banks um, in charge of, 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 of a digital currency, 
Um, well, one of the unintended consequences could be, of course, that uh, that, that currency may or may not be trusted by people. Um, you could end up with people not trusting central bank uh, digital currency and investing in some of these private monies. You may have politicians uh, and treasuries who want to criminalize these private alternatives, thereby you could create um, an enormous black market. You know, politicians are very good at that. We saw that through prohibition with alcohol in the 1920s in America. How long have we been suffering the war on drugs? Whereas, in fact, one of the unintended consequences of that has often been to fuel drug usage from the supply side, spreading it down the age range. And this is the point that Jeremy Warner makes in his Telegraph piece, that central banks may be afraid, politicians and treasuries may be afraid of losing control to privately, you know, powerfully encrypted private digital currencies. And they may dream of creating, if you will, state digital alternatives. But what would the unintended consequences of all that be? Where could this go? And the truth is, Simon, the bottom line is nobody knows. There are banks, there are central banks like the Swedish Central Bank that have been looking at this and been trying to get into it, but it hasn't gone well. So we could be embarked on a pretty rocky road. That's fine if you're testing a bit of technology, a bit of kit, or, you know, a microprocessor, a computer. But when you're dealing with something that we all use and we all have to trust, that can that can be quite concerning. Mm. So, um, but the good thing is that that the nature of money is being discussed and it's linked. It's linked to the financial system is becoming something that people are having to understand. Yes. Now, now that's the, very good. Yeah. The Bloomberg piece that you mentioned, which I was absolutely fascinating, and I hadn't noticed the author until after I'd read the piece and then turned out it's Niall Ferguson, so I understood why it was so interesting. Um but that is is very concerned that um central bankers who until recently were basically trying to stamp on things like Bitcoin. I think they finally realised that, you know, it can't be got rid of, but they clearly would like to control it. But the Niall Ferguson piece is really saying, well, the Chinese are just so far ahead of everybody else with this um, that America risks falling behind. And he's even um, putting forward the hypothesis that the Chinese might actually be so successful with this that there will be a, a, a rival to the dollar, that the, the Americans should not rest on their laurels, believing that the dollar will be the reserve currency for forever. And of course, if, if it loses that position, that causes all manner of problems for the American financial system and thus for the rest of the world. Now, there are surveillance questions to be asked about, about all this, but also security just from the point of safety of our own money. I know somebody who was a very early advocate of Bitcoin, even wrote a book on it, and then his account was hacked and he lost everything he had in Bitcoin. And he now loathes the, the thing. Um, now, clearly, at the moment, if the fraud happens, your bank will probably actually step in and uh, refund you. But that certainly doesn't happen with Bitcoin. And we've seen people who've lost their computers and, as a result, or lost their hard drives, they've lost all their Bitcoin as well. I mean, there are so many things. But what do you sort of think then about the Chinese and why they are so much further advanced than everybody else? Well, the first thing is that um, the Chinese have long wanted to undermine, as so have the Russians, I'm sure, dollar hegemony. Um, because the fact that the Fed can print money, can create money, um, uh, uh, and, and pump it through um uh wall street and wall street can 
uh, you know, lend into existence all manner of other monies, but that crucially, because it is the global reserve country uh, money, um, that America can often avoid inflation by exporting its inflation mm. overseas. That's a cre crucial fact. That 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 obviously, the more the United States is in debt, and the more the Chinese can do to undermine uh, dollar hegemony, uh, you know, the more powerful Chinese statecraft can become. And this is why I think the Chinese have been amassing a huge amount of gold in their central bank reserves and are very, very interested in the future of money and what I call these inelastic forms of money mm -hmm. that you can't just tap into a computer and create them from thin air. Um, uh, in, in a way, it's an irony, isn't it, that, that probably... Um, some members of the Chinese Communist Party are more aware of the traditional writings around what used to be called sound money than many so-called <laughs> capitalists. But, um, but um, I think that, that if you read papers by, for example, the Rand Corporation and many think tanks in America, there, there was a sense for the last five years where if they could give the impression that these digital currencies are simply the plaything of criminals, then somehow this future will go away. Well, that's a really useless argument. It would be a bit like saying that, you know, I know in the Edwardian period, because criminals will be you know, able to use motor cars, um, we should yes. not have motor cars. You know, well, just because Al Capone had a motor car is no reason why you and I and millions of other people shouldn't enjoy them. And I'm afraid this is the same with. Um, uh, digital currencies. Look, I'm an optimist, and I'm sure that this race that is on uh, around, um, you know, let's call it money or currency hegemony for the future, because that's on, and because people like Niall Ferguson are writing about it, and it's, you know, on Bloomberg, and it's in our own domestic national press, The Telegraph and others, this topic is out there and people are at least for the first time in years questioning the nature of money. They now understand that, that the pound sterling is not something that's inevitable, or, nor is the dollar or the ruble. These things that are, are, are legally, politically and socially constructed and in the digital world, um, the, the cycle is turning again to my Victorian great-grandparents, money, the pound, meant it was backed by gold. Mm. To our generation, it has been backed by a psychological belief in money. It's, yes. it's, it's a psychological trick. But the wheel will turn again, and what money be will become is something that's up for debate. The good news is that the people who will win the debate are the people who can come up with the most secure um, uh, uh, and and I would suggest the soundest in that traditional liberal sense, uh, the soundest you know unit of account, mm -hmm. store of money, um, and a medium of exchange, and all those other things. Um, and and do I really believe that that's likely to come um, from the Chinese government? Well, it may do, <laughs> but I'm yes. not convinced. You're always the optimist in these things. I'm always tend to the more pessimistic view. And that there was one line in the Jeremy Warner piece that you know just encapsulates the thing that I find most chilling. That essentially, if you've got a central bank digital currency, and the central bank has, because of the nature of 
cryptocurrencies, a single ledger of all transactions, and it knows everything that everybody is doing. I find that rather rather chilling, although I'm sure you would put a more optimistic slant on it than I would. Well, um, uh, if I were a central banker, would I want that central bank ledger? Would I want that blockchain mm. ledger? No, I wouldn't, because... You know, I would recognize, I'd be the first to point out that governments are not always brilliant at managing people's data. You know, it doesn't matter which system you're in. And would you want to put all your eggs in one ledger basket? No, you really would want to decentralize. So um, what I could imagine is central banks having a role um, in digital currencies, but those currencies having to compete in the future with really strong viable private mm -hmm. alternatives and that um and and that and that you know that we actually return to a world a healthy world where um sound money mm -hmm. um as you know as a store of value um and and really something that is also embedded in notions of of economic and social justice can return. Yeah. Um, but I do, do I think central banks are going to want that kind of monopoly? No, I think they're wiser than that mm. in the West. Thank you, Jim. Intriguing you. Earlier I mentioned that YouGov survey from 2017 about what people wanted, whether they wanted particular um, sectors back in control of the state or not. But with banks, it was very much the other way. The majority of the people, by some long way, wanted them to remain private. They didn't want the state controlling their money. So we shall see. Uh, time, though, I think, for us to move over to a different topic. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose in conversation with Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Um, Tim, we don't have an enormous amount of time uh, left, but uh, we've got one more topic you want to cover, I believe. Yes, um, there have been really good articles in recent days, um, one in The Guardian and one in The Telegraph that make actually a similar point, really. Um, uh, in The Guardian, um, uh, they're pointing out a uh, very good piece by uh, Raphael Bahir. Uh, um, very good piece that the future of the United Kingdom, of of of, of the United Kingdom being a united and in, in ultimately unitary state, uh, depends to an extent on a Labour revival in England. Uh, I mean, let's just go back here through through um, some sort of relatively recent history. Traditionally, Scotland, as the home of the Scottish Enlightenment and, and Scots being thrifty and canny by repute, um, you know, they, they were a fairly conservative people. But with the rise of Margaret Thatcher and Thatcherism, uh, huge swathes of Scotland broke with that, um, that uh, uh, Tory ideal and, and, uh, and, and very much resented, I think, England for imposing such a radical Tory government on them for such a long time. And, of course, you've then had the rise of Scottish nationalism, uh, which has been a real force. And although the SNP you know, lost the referendum a few years ago for Scottish independence, clearly a, a huge number of Scots want independence, and that remains very much uh, a topic. We're heading towards um, 
local elections in England and 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 they're heading towards uh, elections in Scotland in early May and one wonders where that will go. Um, the, the new party created by Alex Salmond, uh, ALBA, doesn't seem to be polling brilliantly in the polls, but it is winning some favour. And whether the SNP have a phenomenal uh, majority or they're on a the knife edge, uh, we will see. But, but I think there is this sense, both in The Guardian and The uh, and Telegraph, that, that so long as the Labour Party you know, remains so far behind um, the Conservatives in England. And someone told me last week the Tories are polling something extraordinary, like a 10 or 14% lead, that, that this means that for the Scots, um, you know, uh, th th this sort of right-wing politics is so alien, it sort of fuels um, Scottish resentment. And that if the Labour Party does enjoy a revival uh, in the polls under Keir Starmer and becomes a more powerful and viable opposition, and that there is sort of light at the electoral, you know, in the electoral tunnel, whereby yes, they might not be able to form a government in the next election, but but they become viable for the one after that, that this will sort of start to ameliorate some of the polarised tensions between the English and Scottish systems. So um, this is where. Um, I think it is plausible to argue that if there is going to be a viable future for the United Kingdom, um, uh, then then that will, to an extent, depend on there being, at some stage, a Labour revival in England. But that's not going to happen any time immediately, is it, unless something extraordinary happens? And yet we can't help feeling that if um, the SNP and possibly Alba do incredibly well in the in the forthcoming elections in Scotland, that the, the demands for uh, another referendum are just going to become overwhelming. Um, yes, uh, I, I guess that could happen. Um, uh, but the first thing is, we don't know actually what will happen in Scotland. One assumes there will be uh, a robust uh, SNP majority, but you know, it's, there are days to go and a week is a long time in politics. It'll be interesting to see where Alba goes. Um, I think that Keir Starmer has in recent days really landed a few punches on the Conservative Party with this theme of cronyism and sleaze. Mm. And one, you know, that does seem to chime well with voters and could yet have electoral impact. Um, and, and, and one can expect that to filter through to the opinion polls over the days and next few weeks. So I think we're living in fluid times. And I don't think we can simply expect um, the Tory party to go on riding as high as they have um, in recent months. If, if, if Keir Starmer gets cut through, uh, which is, by the way, something the hard left don't want to happen, they would like him to flounder mm -hmm. and then, I think, lay the charge that he's a boring technocratic Labour leader and that Labour need to get back to robust beliefs of the hard left. That's the, what the left want to do. Um, but, you know, um, of course, the Labour Party are desperate to maintain the union um, because if the union was ever broken, given England's propensity to vote conservative, uh, you know, we would be in danger of, of almost living, dare I say, in some mm. kind of blue managed democracy. And um, I think wiser owls in all these political tribes uh, should avoid that because um, I think circulating elites... 
and bringing different philosophies uh, makes for a better uh, and healthier nation. I really do. Tim, thank you very much. I've been in conversation with Tim Evans, who's Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. And Tim will be back talking to me again in a fortnight's time. The Bigger Picture. Going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. 